There you go, recording in progress. Um, let me share my screen. And Okay, so here we are. Um, welcome to the 50th uh, meetup of the Vox Portal. Um, this is a pretty special one. Uh, I can't believe we've been around for 50 meetups, but it's true. Uh, in the very first meetup of this DevOps Portal gathering, Noel Paish was one of the people that uh, was a part of it. Uh, he helped us set it up. Uh, DevOps Lisbon was a little bit older and a little bit bigger by then already. Uh, so it's, it's a pleasure to have Manuel here back for, for this 50th uh, event. Um, so, uh, just very quickly, what, what is our mission here with DevOps Porto? So we're a local meetup uh, with a pandemic a little bit more global, but, um, but we're focused locally. And our mission is to build bridges between both development operations, the DevOps part of things, uh, but also between communities and companies and companies and people. Um, and we typically do this uh, in real life. Uh, by uh, having events in different companies and always rotating uh, so that people can get to know the companies, the companies can get to know the people. We share uh, events with other communities as well often. Uh, so essentially building bridges is our motto as you can clearly see in the, in the logo. You can find us in the usual spots um, online, uh, on our webpage, you have all the links to all the others. Uh, so you can start there. There's a Twitter, there's a LinkedIn, there's a Heroku app to make it easier to join our Slack. We can always email us if you're still emailing people. Um, first announcement of the day, DevOps Days Portugal 2022. So uh, due to Pandemic reasons, uh, this didn't occur in the last couple of years, but this year it will happen. It's been confirmed. Uh, it will be a two-day event, um, which is a result of a collaboration between DevOps Lisbon and DevOps Porto. Uh, and it will happen here in Porto, in the, the Alfandega, the, the customs, the old customs, uh, on the 26th and 27th of September. Uh, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is because the, CP, the CFP uh, closes already on May 8th. So if you're interested, uh, you can register. Uh, you, can all, you can already buy tickets, I think. But most importantly, you can submit um, maybe a talk. Um, <clears throat> I want to start with the future. So um, our next meetup um, will be about the Dora metrics and lessons learned. It will be uh, given by uh, Fernando Eich, uh, who is um, head of production engineering at PicPay uh, in Brazil. And it will happen on the 20th of April. Uh, this meetup will occur online and it will likely be in Portuguese. Uh, then another event. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we sent out um, a short questionnaire to people uh, to try to decide whether people were okay with going back to in in person meetups, and the result was staggering. Um, the sixty five responses that we got, uh, 
were overwhelmingly positive. People want to go back to being in person. Um, we also asked people uh, what format they prefer. And just to make sure we had two options with coffee breaks. So people voted for both of them. Um, but yeah, people like uh, talks uh, like we are having today. Uh, they like coffee breaks to chat informally. Also open spaces, which is something not so easy to do in online meetups. Uh, but we're going to try to do a little bit today with just a Q&A format. Um, so um, we'll have today's meetup. Next meetup will still be online. Uh, the, meet, the meetup after that will already be in person, um, hopefully. So today we uh, have two uh, amazing talks. Um, the first one is uh, Platform as a Product, and it will be given by Manuel Paes. Uh, I already talked a little bit about Manuel. He started DevOps Lisbon meetup. That's how I met him. Um, but he uh, is also an IT organizational consultant. He's a keynote speaker, uh, and he's the co-author of the book and Academy Team Topologies, uh, where this concept of platform teams um, is described and its relations to, to other teams, forms of collaboration. Um, he will present first, and then we'll have a short Q&A with him uh, because it's later in Spain. And, People have a family, uh, but we have a double whammy today. So we're not going to talk about uh, platform uh, as a product in a theoretical sense, but also in a very practical sense by João Alves, uh, who is an engineering manager at Advinta in Barcelona. And he will be talking uh, through their own transformation with internal platforms uh, and lessons learned from that, things that went well, things that uh, maybe didn't go so well. Um, and there'll be a Q&A around that too. So just a couple of guidelines, uh, we're online. So, you know, please keep yourself muted to avoid noise, uh, mostly. Uh, we encourage you to turn on your camera. Um, it's nicer when people do presentations to see other people instead of seeing a black Zoom screen, uh, but that's to your discretion. Um, after each presentation, there will be a Q&A round. You can ask questions in multiple ways. Um, if you're shy, just write your question in the chat and uh, I will read it um, as I can. Or you can just raise your hand or, or just ask the question yourself uh, when there's an opening. So um, that said, let's dive in. Uh, Manuel, do you wanna take it away? Uh, sure. And thanks for having me again, uh, 50 meetups later. <laughs> I, I think, did I do one meetup, another meetup, another talk uh, some, somewhere in the middle? I think so. But uh, I looked it up. I, it seems it was in September 2016, the, that first meetup. No, October, October 2016. So um, it's been a long time, a long, a long journey, but it's really good to see both DevOps Porto and DevOps Lisbon have continued to thrive despite the pandemic. Things change a little bit, but there's still community. I recognize a lot of faces, names here. Um, so that's really, really great. And so I managed to negotiate a bit more time. So I, I'm hoping to stay, uh, maybe not until the end, but but close to. I'm very interested in um, Joan's talk as well. I've, I've had a chance to talk to, um, 
some people at Vinta and they're doing really interesting uh, stuff around platform uh, because really once you start in this kind of journey, uh, you can you can find new patterns that work well for your organization. It's not like it's not a prescription or anything. It's really about the principle. So that's really what I'm going to talk about. Why does this matter? Platform as a product. How is this different from what we've been doing in the past? Right. This the idea of having an internal platform is not new. I when I started in in um, IT in, in 2000 after I graduated, we already had internal platforms, but um, the real difference is how do we provide them, uh, what is the purpose, what do we focus on. I'm going to try to keep the talk short because uh, Miguel asked me to, to have more time for questions, and I think that makes sense, um, but uh, sometimes I start to go off and take too long. So let's get into it. Uh, what is platform as a product? Um, Miguel already mentioned, I'm one of the co-authors of the book, Team Topologies. Um, so I'm not going to go, we're going to talk a little bit about um, a couple of the, the ideas, but it's not really focused this talk on, on the book uh, alone. Um, just to say, I think as well for the platform as for anything in terms of your organization design and why it should change or not, um, the point should be to continuously evolve, right? So I'm I'm not a huge fan of transformation uh, or transition, this kind of terminology, because it gives the sense that you get to some much, somehow, sometime later, you get to a much better state. And I think we all know that's not what really happens. You might get to a worse state, uh, even though some things improve, but other things might uh, not improve as much. So if you like, for me, Team topology is what you know. Charles said here is, is tools and, and concepts and approaches to think about how do we kind of actually evolve over time to adapt our operating model. Um, and that's all I'm going to say on, on the book itself. Um, I do want to mention we have a workbook that is focused on applying ideas from team topologies to remote working, especially when we're talking about different teams interacting and how do we set up our workspaces and our uh, practices and, and approaches to think about uh, promoting good interactions, a good flow in a remote environment. And so it's it's more practical. It's a it's short workbook applying the ideas with, with examples and exercises. So really the question that I'm going to try to answer in this talk is what is platform as a product and why should we care about this? Why should we try to adopt this approach? And you might be convinced or not convinced, and that that's fine, and would be um, great to to chat afterwards. So the agenda is pretty straightforward. Let's first agree, or you know, have an idea. What do we mean by platform, and what do we mean by product, and then how the two kind of combine. And we're going to finish with a couple of examples. Um, so what is a, a platform? Obviously it's overloaded term. It means a lot of different things for different people. And then you have products that are platforms themselves and the for external customers. And so it's um, there's all sorts of, of interpretations. So we adopted this particular one from Evan Butcher. Um, and he is talking about the digital platform as a foundation of self-service APIs to services, knowledge and support necessary and the range as a compelling internal product. So I, I highlighted 
what I think are some key aspects of this digital platform uh, and things that we cannot get a, get away from, right? You can have an interpretation of platform that's different from this, but for fast flow, for the things we talk about in team topologies, it, th this platform needs to be self-service, right? We're not talking about kind of generic platform idea where then at the end of the day, the work that platform does, platform team does is responding to requests or tickets all the time. And so there's still all this back and forth between you know, teams asking for things and waiting for the platform teams to, to serve them in a way. Uh, with with manual steps or whatever, um, that's not what we're talking about. We're we're talking about self service tools, APIs, whatever it might be, that uh, the consumers of the platform don't have to wait for for a team to do something for them. Don't have to wait on a response to a ticket. So that is that is fundamental. That is sort of non negotiable. Obviously depending where you are, you might have a path, a journey to get to this self-service approach and you're going to start somewhere, but um, it shouldn't be something that is sort of optional. Oh yeah, we'll try to make a self-service if we can, but oh, this is too difficult. So we're not going to kind of focus on that. Um, that should not be the approach. Um, it includes support, obviously. So basically there are teams that develop and support the platform and they care about the customers, they care about making life easier for them. And finally, last but not least, we're making a platform as a compelling internal product. And, and so obviously we're gonna dig into this, this aspect, this part, but um, fundamentally, uh, one of the things is that we're not mandating the platform, which is typical of the platforms of the past where uh, we're forcing everyone or almost everyone in the organization to use the platform because we invested in this platform. And so we must profit from it by having everyone use it. Uh, the problem with that is that this sets off wrong incentives because when you're building something that other people are forced to use, you know, it really depends on, on whether you have that customer approach and you actually want to make this better but often uh, not out of bad intentions but often people get too focused on the technical aspects and stuff we're building and we're not really having the time or uh, concerted focus on customers right so that's one of the reasons why uh, treating it as a product that is optional to use is really important the other kind of the complement to that is what also evan butcher said and um, the platform should aim to create a path of least resistance, make the right thing, the easiest thing to do. Um, so it's not that we're promoting that every team does things differently, but we're kind of self-imposing to, to ourselves uh, in the platform to look for the what is the right thing to do and make it easy. So that there's no reason why a team would go off and build their own deployment pipelines, for example, if the platform has the, the necessary, the, the right level of abstraction and flexibility. So in that case, that team is just wasting time and, and it should that team should be accountable to why are we spending time with deployment, creating our own tooling and or using our own tooling, creating our own um, approaches when the platform can do that in a, in a efficient way, right? 
Um, so it's not about optionality. It doesn't mean that there's no accountability for the, the teams consuming the platform. They should have a valid, uh, if you like, a business case to why are we investing our effort in this thing that is not fundamentally what we should be uh, building. Uh, we should be focusing on what our end customers need. All right. So last year, there was uh, the State of DevOps report, the, the Puppet Labs one. Um, uh, had some really interesting conclusions around uh, organization of teams, uh, interactions between teams, and in for our uh, topic today around platform uh, teams as well. And so one of the things they found uh, is that not every platform team is automatically successful, but the successful ones treat their platform as a product. So this speaks to the fact what I was saying before. We can have platform teams, but the way that they provide value, the way that they interact with other teams, uh, the way that they are, they are how, how other teams depend on them, how is that dependency fulfilled? Is it sort of a blocking dependency or is it enabling dependency makes a huge difference, right? So it's not just having platform teams because that's really doesn't mean much um, when you look across organizations. And so, there's a need to address organizational and team aspects, namely helping teams clarify their mission, primary customers, interfaces, and what makes for healthy team interactions. Um, and so in team topologies, we talk about these four types of teams. Um, for people who are not familiar with team topologies, uh, what, what you need to know for, for today's talk is that we talk about stream-aligned teams as a sort of, if you like, in DevOps uh, terms, build and run team, but it's it's more than that. It's a team with end-to-end -end ownership of a service or part of a product, um, but where that end-to-end -end ownership means that ideally the work uh, never needs to leave the team. We have full um, ownership, meaning, meaning we, sh we should be able to make decisions on what are we going to build, what are we going to change, how are we going to evolve the service, when to invest in the quality of the service, reducing technical debt and other things, um, and, and being responsible also for the runtime and the operability and looking after the, the health of the service in production. So this is what we call streamlined team. Um, obviously, the first question people have is, how is this even possible, right? If we have a team of seven, eight, nine people usually, um, and the way we do it is then with the other types of teams with a kind of, um, they have a supporting role, if you like, but it's also a critical role to have uh, this, this kind of streamlined teams, right? And so really what we're looking at, or we should be looking at is ecosystem of teams that we need to have in place, right? Which streamlined teams do we need? Which platform teams? And then the other types uh, possibly as well. Particularly the platform team, really the goal is to abstract away a lot of the um, lower level aspects of the technology stack, but it can also be aspects of design, aspects of uh, compliance. So there's really no, no barrier to what could, could be in a sort of platform, as long as that's something that we're um, abstracting so that the streamlined teams don't have to know all the details, right? They don't have to be worried about uh, the infrastructure to run our 
deployment tools or our monitoring tools, or they don't have to be worried about configuring those tools, etc. And so they are the owners of the service. They are the owners for their service on how to deploy, how to monitor, etc. Um, but they rely on the platform to abstract away a lot of the details. And so therefore, um, supporting this type of team to be able to do their work with, you know, uh, seven to nine people uh, usually, or, or maybe even less. And so very importantly, again, uh, referring to the, to the report from Papad is then understanding the behaviors that we need to have in this sort of platform teams. And there are two main things we need to consider. Um, we need to have strong collaboration with streamlined teams or build and run teams when we're creating a new platform service or we're evolving an existing service, right? So we don't do that in isolation where we go off for three months or, or six months and then we come back and say, here's a new service for you to use. You know how that ends because we've done that in the past for our external customers and we know that it, when we come back after even three months, it's never, we, we never built what they actually needed. Maybe what they needed even changed during those three months. We didn't understand what they needed in the beginning anyway. So, you know, hopefully everyone <laughs> understands this is not a good approach anymore. So it's very much, uh, if you like, an agile approach, an iterative approach where we, in the beginning, we don't go off and build stuff by ourselves in the platform. We collaborate with the teams to understand really what, what they need, what is, you know, how the API should look like or how the, 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 the web interface should look like for the service, et cetera and what are the different use cases we need support and so on. Um, nothing really new, it's just applying these ideas of agile iterative development to the platform development as well. So in the beginning is more collaboration. And then at some point you're going to need to focus, sort of shift a bit the focus of platform team working on a given service to the support, improving the support, improving documentation, making sure the service you know, is reliable enough, stable enough, uh, performing enough uh, for the needs of, of your, or your internal teams. And so we call this, at this moment, you, what you want to do is basically make the service generally available in the organization. And so from that moment, it should be consumed in this access a service way where we don't actually expect that we need to have a lot of communication happening between platform and the consumers of a platform. We expect the service is easy to use, to understand there's proper documentation, there are examples. And so onboarding uh, is, is pretty straightforward. Um, and so that's actually a good place to actually sort of anti-pattern that some teams face is that they try to do this too early. And so the, the, what happens then if we say, well, yes, the service is ready for everyone to use. And then you get this backlash where you're flooded with help requests, support requests. We don't understand the service. The service doesn't do what we need, et cetera. And so you need to be careful, make sure you've, you've spent enough time collaborating and understanding the needs before you make it generally available. Um, and if it does happen that you know it was too early, then we need to stop and make adjustments uh, um, as quickly as, as possible. In general, kind of the, the pattern that then is going to repeat over and over again is that we, sorry, we have more, more collaboration in the beginning where we need to actually discover together what, what is needed, what is gonna be useful, helpful, and how to provide it. And then over time, we understand better what, what that is 
and we sort of start kind of establishing, making it kind of more stable and uh, available to everyone. The other important idea to take away from team topologies is uh, think about your thinnest viable platforms. Obviously, this is a take on minimum viable product. Um, think about what is the, the minimum, like, like in those um, after eight chocolates that uh, my family would give me every Christmas when I was a kid. I don't know if it was the same for you. <laughs> I don't know if it was a, uh, a general tradition or just in my family. Um, but so they're very thin, right? So that's what we're trying to do with the platform. And so this idea of a thinnest viable platform is really to keep, instead of trying to build everything possible that potentially could be useful, focus on a smaller set of curated complement, complementary services or patterns that your teams can use together to simplify and accelerate delivery. Um, and so it can be to some extreme, even just a wiki page um, or a page somewhere saying, you know, use these services in this ways with this kind of default configuration or this base configuration, which tends to work well for our needs. And so, especially if you're in a kind of startup or scale up, maybe your platform is just this sort of agreement that this is a good way to use these services. Uh, that alone can help a new team just looking at that, oh, right, we're going to use this approach so we don't have to think about all this stuff that other teams already um, figured out, right? Even if we don't have an actual platform team, which might be the case in, in very small organizations. Um, but for any organization, a good platform is just big enough, but no bigger. We, we want to avoid kind of the, the bloated platforms of the past where you have tons of shared services, but then you ask teams, how well do these services work? How often do you have problems using these services? And the answers might not be that, that great. And so when we build a platform that is too big, has too many things that don't work as well as they should, because we basically don't have enough attention span to cater for all of them. What we're actually doing is causing more pain sometimes to the consumers of the platform, especially if they're forced to use the platform. Um, and so we're actually increasing their cognitive load now because they have to figure out what does this thing actually do? How is this service uh, working? How do we, I make it work for what I need? And, and maybe I need to, to figure out the workaround, um, not to mention shadow projects and shadow IT where teams kind of in the in the... <laughs> Uh, try to hide that they're using other um, other technologies and other tools. And, and by the way, I've I've been in that wrong side of the of this of this problem, right? Where I was the one, or my team was the one um, telling teams to you can only use this stuff that we have built and and this these processes, and and finding out some teams were using some other language because that's what made sense for them, even in sometimes because that's what they had experience with. And so um, that's not a good approach. And I've been um, guilty of, of not realizing that as well earlier. And so um, what is the product then? Um, that is, we need to understand that to then understand how is platform as a product different. So if you go to Wikipedia, it's kind of a uh, kind of definition, satisfy desire of, or need of a customer. Yeah, okay, that doesn't tell us very much. Um, Marty Kagan, I think, has a much kind of more adequate uh, definition for these days, um, where he's talking about 
the product as a holistic user experience. It's, yes, functionality, obviously, but also design and also even how we monetize and, and the content, especially if it's user-driven content, uh, the product. Of course, talking about digital uh, products. Um, but one of the key ideas of a product is that is optional to use, right? No one is going to force you to use a product. Uh, no one's going to force you to buy a certain kind of sneakers, right? You, know, you have a choice and, and, and you decide what, what you need or what, what you like, et cetera. A product is carefully designed and curated. So that means we, first of all, we understand that there are different types of, of uh, customers, users. Uh, we look at what are the right tools and what is the right design for the, those people, those customers with different background, different experience, different needs, right? So one of the things that um, people in, in uh, user experience and, and other areas talk about often is user personas, right? So that should be a, a basic thing that we should be looking at. A user persona basically represents a segment of our customer, of our audience. So we, we, we kind of characterize by using kind of realistic examples what are the different types of customers that we have, right? Um, a product also simplifies something for users in general. Um, you know, even in the old days, this was already, uh, this jukebox, right, was simplifying uh, a task for the people who wanted to listen to music. And maybe they didn't have that, those uh, old, um, at the time, they didn't, they didn't know how to play the, the vinyl or they didn't have that machine. So you just put a quarter and it, you select the song and it starts playing. That's, that's pretty, pretty sweet, right? Um, a product also evolves to take advantage of technology changes. Uh, and of course, in the technology and, and um, IT context, that, that is quite clearly important. You, know, uh, you only have to look at um, Kubernetes uh, landscape of, of um, uh, tools and, and all the, the, the um, technology available uh, in, that, in that landscape. And you, you, you know that we can't expect that we're going to keep using the same technology for very long because we're going to be behind on doing things more efficiently. So for in general, you know, we want to keep up with the technology. So that's something that platform can help with. Um, and now comes my attempt to be geeky, but I really don't do regular expressions. Uh, I did a fair amount, but that was what? 15 more or, or more years ago. Um, but I think this is correct. <laughs> if we replace product by platform, then what do we get? Like what, what makes uh, a platform as a product basically? Um, and we just go through the same principles. A platform is optional to use. We're not forcing teams to use the platform. Um, and so this sets the kind of right incentive that platforms must advocate for the platform product. They need to show what is the value? Why should teams use this platform? Um, and understand how is this um, actually uh, aligned to the needs of the teams and how we're making their life easier or not. And so it's not that we're turning platform teams into now uh, marketeers or, or, or salespeople, but we do need to make that exercise of uh, on a regular basis, understanding what actually is the value that we're providing. To the, to the organization and to other teams, right? And kind of market that to other teams because if platform is not mandated, that means other teams are going to be need to, to 
gain awareness of what is in the platform. How does this help us? So we're going to look at the use switch example, which gives us some more insights in a moment. So the platform is also carefully designed and curated. Uh, so we have the user in mind, in this case, internal teams and, and mostly engineering teams. And so we have a focus on user experience and developer experience uh, in, in the platform. Even if we only provide APIs in the platform, there's still an experience of using the API, right? Does the API provide the right um, answers? How does it handle uh, incorrect uh, requests and all these things? So we could have APIs and still have a better experience for the teams if they need to, you know, I don't know, maybe call multiple APIs to get the, the information they need. Then we actually actually haven't really um, understood their 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 needs uh, properly. And the platform simplifies something for users. In particular, in this case, um, it should help our users, our engineers, to achieve goals by understanding their needs and basically simplify their tasks and workflows. So in, like in the examples I gave earlier, we're simplifying the workflow of a deployment. Or we're simplifying the workflow for monitoring, right? You don't have all the, all the, the steps that um, you would need to have if there was no platform where we, we would need to take care of our own monitoring tools, for example. We would need to be looking at uh, uh, the infrastructure. Uh, we would need to be looking at all these sort of things. That's now should be taken care of by the platform if that kind of service exists. And finally, the platform evolves to take advantage of technology changes as well. Um, ideally, the platform might be able to evolve capabilities that it, that's offered with um, a clear roadmap and trajectory. Plus, if you have, let's say, the right abstractions in the platform for your internal teams, you might be able to, um, in, in many cases, sort of swap and change the underlying technology possibly without affecting your um, users of the platform. It's not always the case, right? Um, it it uh, depends a little bit, but uh, at least it makes it easier. And at least if you have the kind of a right abstractions that uh, your teams use, then uh, probably um, when you, you change the, the underlying technology, the amount of things that need to change for the teams uh, consuming the platform is also smaller. And finally, um, like for any product, the platform needs modern product management and service management, um, which are things that just typically have not been kind of um, at the forefront of kind of more traditional platform teams where we're only looking at kind of technical uh, aspects. And so I often see and I recommend customers to actually bring their most experienced product managers into the platform. Right, because sometimes they want to put a, a junior product manager or they hire someone new and, and assign them to the platform. But actually, the platform is difficult because you're going, to, if you start to be successful, especially, you're going to have requests from many teams asking you to do a million different things. And you're going to need to be um, very good at prioritizing, at understanding what, what are the, the actual needs versus kind of one and a half by teams. Um, and so that all that work is requires uh, a really good approach, plus understanding really what are the true needs of the teams. Um, obviously, also, they might come to you with telling you what is the solution to what they need, right? Instead of, of explaining 
what, what actually is the problem. Um, I know it's just taking longer than I, I hope for, but I, I do wanna give a couple of quick examples. One is from Uswitch. This is a company in the UK. Um, it's similar to, um, what is the name of Portuguese platform? Uh, here we go with, with platform uh, terminology. Um, basically, they, they allow comparing different services for internet providers, for mobile providers, for uh, electricity, etc. Um, almost every country has kind of something similar, but this is for the UK. And so what's interesting is that they started like 15, 20 years ago, and they always, or at some point, they were really focusing on autonomy of teams. So you see here, these are streamlined teams, um, and each team is doing taking care of the whole life cycle, right? So they, they each had their own AWS accounts, all their own tooling, and all these things. So there was no kind of shared platform or services. Uh, the only thing is they had to use AWS. And so what's interesting is that uh, their CTO, Paul Ingalls, did this analysis um, and he started looking because teams were felt overloaded. They felt like we're all we do is, is take care of all this tooling, all this technology stack, and we don't really have much time to focus on the customer needs anymore. And um, this, this became more evident over time. And so what's, what's cool and, and a bit geeky about this as well is that uh, they start looking at what are how many calls to AWS services are we doing uh, for, for different teams, for different services. And they started seeing, yes, over time, this keeps increasing because the services get more um, complex. We have more things that we're using and so on. And so they actually looked at this as a sort of proxy to how overloaded their teams were with the kind of technical uh, aspects. And so Paul said, um, you know, we realized people are spending more time interacting with kind of low level services, thus spending their time on relatively low value decisions. So this is really interesting. Uh, it means they were moving away from focusing on customer needs, on reacting very quickly to kind of the market and how things change to spending most of their time, you know, which, uh, AWS service should we use? Should we move to I don't know what it was EKS or whatever at the time? And so, really, from a from a business perspective, those are lower value decisions. And they introduced Kubernetes not because they wanted to change the organization. Uh, sorry, they didn't change the organization to use Kubernetes, but they use Kubernetes to change the organization. Um, so they they yes, they use Kubernetes as a platform as technology, but what they really wanted to do is introduce this idea of platform uh, teams and uh, reducing and, and uh, how much their streamlined teams had to worry about and care about. And this was quite effective. So when they looked at the graph again, sometime later, you can see the curve went down. That means the, the what used to be direct calls to AWS from the services were now going through the platform, right? Those. Uh, are the ones that that you don't see here is because they're using the platform. So this is a good thing, this inflection point here, where actually, again, as looking at this as a proxy for the load on the teams on 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 this kind of um, technical environmental aspects, it it went down. This means it free freed up space for the teams to focus again more on on the business aspects. And so they wanted to scale the teams. 
but maintain the principles that they had in the beginning with uh, without the platform, which is autonomy, work with minimal coordination, and have self-service infrastructure. Where in the past, self-service meant each team decides by themselves. So this was good in the beginning. Very quickly, teams could move on. They didn't have to wait for anyone else to approve or to, to deploy or, or to provide something. They would just go and say, yes, let's create this. Let's use this AWS service. Let's create this database. Um, but over time, that became became overbearing, and and teams were not uh, didn't have space to focus on other things. Um, the journey from USwitch, I won't go into all the details, but was really interesting because they didn't again start and to define uh, what are all the services we're going to provide, all the functionality. No, they sat down with the first kind of customer, one of the teams that was kind of had some more problems kind of lagging behind a bit in terms of, you know, some aspects, some technological aspects around logging, auto scaling, et cetera. And so they said, this is a great potential customer and that's how you should build a product. You don't go and build everything. You look at the MVP, you look at who is going to be the first um, customer or, or first few customers. So you validate the platform, you validate what you're offering. And then they, yes, and then over time, they grew, they started to have more adoption by other teams, and they had to then focus on this other group of teams that were more reluctant to adopt the platform because you know it's something new. We used to do this by ourselves. Why do, do we have to, why should we use the platform that is maintained by another team now? So they had to do a lot of work around clarifying what is the reliability, the performance, latency of the platform services, right? Because that was the concern of some of the teams, right? Are you going to be able to provide the same uh, quality of service that we were, we had already before by ourselves, um, even if that was taking up a lot of our time? Our time, but we could guarantee those those sort of um, SLAs for our own service before. So they had to do this work, which again is more, if you like, almost marketing. Of course, it's technical as well. It's showing the metrics, showing the the dashboards, but it's also a bit selling the platform, right? It's like, look, we can show you that this is the, the, the indicators for the platform services, et cetera. Um, and so that worked quite well. And then eventually they got adopted by basically all the teams, um, even the ones that were more reluctant and they started building services that were also not available before um, around you know, even alerts, SLOs as a service with dashboards and stuff like that. We have the example on our website, so there will be links at the end. So if you want to dig a bit more, and like I said, because they were successful, it's normal that you start seeing new patterns and new platforms emerging. So this is the picture they had uh, probably a year ago or more. So maybe now they even have more platforms. I don't know, uh, but it, they start with the cloud infrastructure, and then they uh, actually added platform focused on data, another focusing on, on affiliate marketing. And so it can go in, in really uh, a lot of different directions. I promise I'm almost done, Miguel, I, two minutes. <laughs> Adidas is also quite interesting. It's of course, it's a different scale. Uh, you switch, you could call it uh, a small organization. Um, Adidas is very large but they've also invested a lot in internal platform engineering. Um, also in, in engineering in general, they used to basically outsource everything, only have project managers and that was uh, crap. Uh, what came out of that? Um, 
and then they start investing heavily in the internal engineering and especially in the platform. So, um, of course, their approach is, is a little bit more, I don't know, formal is the right word, but it's a bit more kind of uh, uh, thought out, but it's really interesting and really good results. Um, and so you can see these are some examples of their services in digital platform. And then they have here as uh, a scheme where they're saying, how are, are these teams mostly um, at in which kind of state, you know, are they collaborating? That means we're mostly kind of developing a new service or new version versus providing this service as a service or enabling actually helping teams understand our service, helping them understand more about this domain. Um, but they, they took this approach of platform as a product um, to heart with really good uh, results. Um, another example, they, they, they here on the left, you can see how platform teams spend their time. So they don't spend all their time developing and maintaining. That's about half of their time. And then the other half is actually uh, helping the, the, the other engineering teams understand the platform, provide advice, etc. Anyways, really, really interesting stuff. Um, the video is available. It's not on YouTube. It's on uh, IT Revolution, but you can register for free and watch, I think, 10 videos per month or something. And finally, I'm, I'm sorry, the images doesn't have very good quality. I don't know if, if uh, how well it comes out, but um, Spotify has really interesting example where they looked at for their deployment, uh, well, deployment CI/CD tooling in the platform. They really looked at because they you know, they're pretty big by now. They have different types of teams, and so they realized some teams need uh, just give me some templates, and I'll just use the template basically. Other teams need to make more customization to the pipelines and you know add more things, more steps, and more different configuration. And other teams, even more sort of uh, advanced between quotes, actually wanted to just use the API directly. They don't even want to have the, the they don't even need the, 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 the web interface for the um, CI/CD services and pipelines. So this is also a really good example of understanding that you have an audience, you have potential kind of you know target audience of customers, and especially for large organizations, don't assume that everyone is the same just because they're they're all engineers. Every people have and especially teams have different experience, different background, and different ways in which they they they're uh, familiar with and that they want to work. And so um, obviously don't also don't just start doing this from the beginning if you haven't really identified these needs, these different needs, right? So it always starts with the, with your internal customer needs, but be aware that it, you might need to provide sort of different entry points even for the same type of service. So last slides, um, the initial question, what, why should I care basically about platform as a product? Um, what, what you get out of it is happier users and engineers and your internal teams, that alone is, is pretty, pretty good. Uh, reducing their cognitive load, how much they have to to know and worry about the kind of lower level details like we saw in the U-Switch example. Uh, we avoid technology bloat, basically building platforms for the sake of technology because we just, because we can and we're gonna, we're gonna do it. Uh, that's not the starting point. And they should be designed to evolve um, and not over-engineered basically. 
And final slide is just resources. So some I highlighted some of the examples um, that specifically talk about platform approach in our uh, website. You also have infographics to give you a kind of overview of team topologies. And if you want to share with other people who are not familiar, that's a good starting point. We have the academy that Miguel mentioned in the beginning, where uh, one of the paths, the learning paths around platform specifically, and, and this idea of platform is a product. That's it. Um, I hope, Miguel, you're not going to kill me, but I should be able to stay until uh, almost the end of the, 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 the meetup so I can answer questions now and then after Joao's talk. All right. Let me just spotlight a couple of people so we can have a little bit of a conversation at Spotlight. Uh, and me at Spotlight. <clears throat> so um, I have a bunch of questions here. Um, I want to, I'll keep asking questions until people start asking questions from the audience. So if you have questions, ask them because I, I could keep on forever. Um, so uh, you started with flow and this really strange concept of stream aligned teams. Is is this a product team? Like what, what is this flow thing? Can you like give me an example of a team like this? Yeah, so... Um... The reason why we didn't we didn't use you could talk about cross-functional product teams, right? So that's kind of more common, uh, more frequent terminology, um, but that is a, a little bit misleading because usually uh, these days we have large products or you have uh, kind of systems with very different technologies. If you think about IoT, for example, and you have cloud, embedded, mobile, so. Um, we felt that talking about product teams was a bit um, unclear. And so we talk about stream aligned teams because if you have in the example where you have a large product, what you are going to need to do is identify how do we, what are the different streams of, of work of uh, that flow of value that the customers need. And that might be based on things like understanding different user personas where maybe I have um, new users versus expert users versus or you have enterprise versus you, enterprise type of customers versus uh, small companies versus uh, independent professionals, depending on the type of, of, of product. And so what we need to do is identify those sort of different streams of continuous value of continuous work, right? So we might have a team, uh, for example, there's a streamlined team that doesn't own the whole product, but owns one kind of substream of the of the whole thing, which might be we look after uh, the enterprise type of, of service. But yeah. by the way, one interesting uh, resource, I, I often mention John Cutler. So he has really good insights around product and team. So he has this really good combination. Um, and he, there's one article where he, he had a, a diagram with different kinds of responsibilities in product teams. So he tends to call them product teams. So you can go from a team that just does development. And so very limited scope. We take, we take a backlog that's given to us and we develop and we code and then uh, maybe we get to, to a staging environment and then another team takes over. Um, to the, what we call stream aligned teams would be at the other extreme where you uh, 
understand customers, you co co decide what's going to be built, and you run experiments. Probably instead of just building features, you're building experiments. You go all the way to coding, testing, deploying, uh, putting things in production, monitoring, supporting the service, and uh, measuring if what you did actually caused the 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 benefit that you wanted. So that's the ideal streamline team, but obviously different organizations, different teams are at different stages of this, this um, spectrum. So the corollary to that is that a team can only have a very small area of focus because if they're doing everything from customer research all the way to maintenance and operation, which makes sense because it, it feeds back into the customer research, um, you what you're talking about is that you you'll have a lot of streamlined teams in a company that a platform team would enable is that it yeah i, I would say yes and no um, yes you need to break down kind of your your business value streams into products into a part of the product that makes sense um, maybe you have a more kind of service oriented architecture and so you're actually able to have services that make sense from a customer uh, point of view um yes yeah i agree that it's difficult to get to that point where you have this true end-to-end -end ownership and so that's kind of the, the the challenging part and that's where the platform teams uh, play a large role to make that possible uh, but then once you have that in place, you would be surprised at how much a team can then take on from, from a business perspective. And they'll be able to generate ideas and even possibly generate new kind of revenue streams that even kind of the more business people didn't think about. They, because they have the, the data, they see the behaviors of customers and users. And so um, it can be quite effective. But it's true that you kind of shift a little bit um, or I would say you create more demand in terms of thinking about those business streams and thinking about how we break them up and when do we need to to reevaluate and say well actually this stream either you know it's it's not turning out to be as valuable for us as a as a business or i don't know it's it doesn't change anymore and so that team might need to take on a new a new challenge a new kind of business um, or customer stream and I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just something that many organizations are not used to do, this kind of con continuous or regular reevaluation of our value streams and then substreams. Um, and so <laughs> we don't have a lot of haters, but I would say mostly they come from the last, last, the, the last framework community because they're always focusing, they're always saying, well, if we have sort of feature teams that everyone owns the code, it's easier to change priorities, change direction in terms of the business. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be true, but it's very difficult to get, you know, shared ownership of, of a large uh, code bases is really, really complicated. I haven't, I, I know there are examples where it works, but it's, uh, to me, it feels more like the exception, but, but I understand the argument, but from Team Topology's perspective, I think the, what we're saying is we need to invest more in that continuous reevaluation. And you might use things like domain-driven design, for example, on a regular basis to identify that or other techniques. Uh, 
Excellent. Uh, Jerome, also feel free to jump in here. Like, I, I don't want to leave you hanging. I know you have opinions about this stuff. Um, I'm going to start with a couple of questions that came up in the chat. Um, Danielle asked, uh, he said, like, you're talking about big teams. You're talking about Adidas, New Switch. Like, these are very, very large companies. What is the smallest team you feel this approach would make sense with? Like, when you have, you know, when you're whatever, classic operations team or SRE team has two people. Yeah. Like, can, can so, that be a like how does that work? Yeah. So actually the use switch example is, is not, is not that big. I think they have, they have 200, 300 people. Um, and if you think about it, the way they, they, they started was very small. It, they, they introduced platform team as a very small team and they could have stopped at some point and say, we have fairly reasonable, use, useful platform that is pretty small, and it's already serving the needs of, of uh, a number of teams, and that would still be be helpful. But I, I think the question, or I get the question, like for startups and scale ups, I think the the idea of platform as a product and and the platform as a we we say a curated experience for your engineers, meaning. We provide an easy way to do certain things and certain tasks and workflows. That makes sense in any kind of size. So in a, in a startup, you might not have a platform team. You might not even have a dedicated person, but you could have uh, either teams coming together to define the platform, to define this curated experience, or you might have uh, some more senior people with you know spending a bit of their time looking at you know what is this thinnest viable platform that we can have in place. Um, and so I think the mentalities can start from the beginning, from when you have uh, five people, 10 people, is then over time, yes, you will tend to change the structures. And so for scale-ups, if we start talking about 30, 40, 50 people, it would probably be a good time if you don't have a platform team yet to really start investing because that's where things tend to kind of grow out of out of uh, out of hand, um, and I don't know if Joe maybe has has uh, experience or examples there too, where because you're you start to be too big for everyone to know what everyone else is doing. Uh, you if you don't have uh, really a good platform, you start to see a lot of, of wasted effort in, in different teams doing similar things that shouldn't be their their focus. Yeah, I, I mostly agree, right? Um, I, I worked for a scale up before. And I recognize this moment when things <laughs> start falling apart. And I think uh, 50 people is more or less the, the magical number if you want one. It could be 30, it could be 60, whatever. Um, and I think there makes sense maybe to, to restructure a bit. But as Manuel said, right? Is that what mindset, right? Isn't, uh, and the mindset can start when you are a team of, five people and you start saying, oh, look, we are doing our services this way and we are deploying this to Heroku and, now, and we ship logs there and that's how we do, right? If we have three services, we know that the three services operate the same. So uh, I think it's more about mindset than, than numbers. Good, I think this leads nicely with, with the question that uh, Eduardo asked about why, why, why building a platform and not just buying the service? It's like, does, does, does those two things work together? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, 
I think Eduardo is just trying to to cause some some confusion. Some noise. No, just kidding. Um, it's a good <laughs> question, and that that's something that sometimes uh, people mis misunderstand from what we're saying. We're not saying build your own platform from mm. from scratch, and so uh, by all means, you know, use third parties as much as you can. Don't don't re re reinvent the wheel. Um, and so, yes, if you can buy or rent or whatever services that are helpful, uh, you should do that. The, the, the key point, and actually, I sometimes tell, uh, to tell, tell people to think about in, in terms of, uh, imagine if you're your platform team and you are, your competition is this external, this, this service that you can buy. Um, how do you differentiate from your engineering teams just going directly and using that service? What do you provide on top of that? And that's where it's really sort of the magic is there. Um, and again, this depends on the experience of your internal teams. If you have teams that, uh, what, is, what is a good example? Let's say you, you all of your teams or almost all of them are really good. They really know Elasticsearch, for example. Why would you build something on top of Elasticsearch? It wouldn't make sense. Just let them use it. You know, maybe maybe provide if it's on-prem, maybe provide infrastructure. But if if it's a SaaS, then let them use it. Just just give them access. Um, but if they don't, if most teams don't know how to use it well, then maybe look at what would be abstraction so they don't have to know as much details and provide this basically a simpler abstraction. So the magic is in this layer on top of the, the third party um, so that you're not spending the platform team's time on rebuilding stuff that already exists is probably better done by, mm. by the people. So think about kind of internally, how do I convince my teams to use my platform service instead of directly the third party? And if it doesn't make sense, then don't do it. Yeah, this is a great question from Eduardo. And I get this question no. a lot. Let me just add some context on the question because um, I heard the expression like I this uh, no, no, I really like the the expression discover together. But uh, if I, if if I understand correctly, what one thing that I uh, it's about confusing me is that uh, what for what you say is okay. Let's provide service, and mainly the effect on this is that. You treat, you just treat your your company fellows like uh, internal customers. So you provide the service. So if everything goes well, why cannot just hire that outside of my company? Well, if if you right, if if you have that approach, and what might happen? Um, Okay, here we started get, getting into the culture of the company as well a little bit. But ideally, if you have you have your internal platform, and it might happen that um, there's there are some new services, external third parties that do basically this, some of the same things that you're providing internally. Um, you should then use those and stop uh, maintaining the service that you had internally. The, the the problem is then in many organizations, people might fear that well this means then I don't have as much to do and I uh, then my job might be in danger and so you need to have the right culture that people understand you know they're valued their expertise is valued 
is mostly about working a different way. It's not about uh, that we don't need you anymore. We still need all the expertise around database infrastructure, SRE, etc. It's just we're 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 uh, sort of leveraging that expertise in a different way. So I don't understand the need of selling the platform if the company is building the platform, right? So because I'm why uh, the it's a discovery journey. So why I why the company needs to sell the the platform? Well, it depends a bit on this on the scale of the the, the company. Um, if you are in a startup scale up, of course, you are able to even collaborate with all the teams before you actually build a service mm -hmm. or validate with all the teams. But uh, at a given scale, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. And so uh, you're going to collaborate with a few teams, but then mm -hmm. you might have a larger audience. And so if you have, um, I don't know, 50 streamlined teams or product teams, if you want to call it that, uh, then you might collaborate with two or three, and then you start seeing, you know, four or five, 10 teams use the service, but then maybe it kind of stales and you see, well, there are all these other 40 teams now not using the service. Why is that? Uh, and that's where you need to, to kind of invest a bit more on understanding what is, what? maybe they don't even know that the service exists. They don't even know how the, the uh, what it provides. And so, that's where it, you would need to do that. That's a really good example from a company called HelloFresh, where they really uh, focus on that. Yeah, that's also a little. Yeah, that's also a little bit the approach that Netflix does with their SRE teams. So they like they have some requirements. So product teams need to do this, that, and whatever it is. And then they provide a platform that say, okay, if you use these libraries, if you use these tools, that's given out of the box, but you can do it uh, whatever, whatever way you want. You just need to adhere to these requirements, whatever it is. You need to send logs to this platform. You need to structure logs in a certain way, and you can use this platform or you can do it um, uh, the way that you want. But like Manuel said, the, the idea is to make it so easy that it doesn't even make sense. Okay, so now I'm going to reinvent the wheel and build my own. Java library to whatever, to whatever. So, so Netflix is kind of a good example of a big company that took that approach. Yeah, this is a great time. I'm just conscious of time. It's a great time to switch to João because I think some of these questions that are coming up will, will be addressed or at least um, we'll have an, a clear example of them. Um, João, do you want to take it away? Sure. Okay, let me share the screen and make sure that okay now i think oh let me just do one thing first i was okay now i will share the screen i guess that you can see it let me just check one more thing cool um, thanks, Miguel, and thanks, DevOps Sport, for, for inviting me. Miguel, uh, sorry, Manuel, made my job a lot easier. Uh, so some of my slides will repeat a bit some concepts um, that Manuel just told, um, but nevertheless, I will, I will maybe skim through them, and you already know the concept, so we can go to the, to the actually funny part. 
Today, I will talk about how we applied uh, the platform team modeling in Adevinta, the company I work for, that allowed us to accelerate um, our large engineering organization. And we, we, are, we will explain why we built this internal platform, how we built it, uh, what it looks like, and also some lessons learned uh, in the process. Uh, a bit about me, um, I'm Joan. Uh, I've been seven years building distributed systems in different companies, scale-ups, startups, and also big company like Adevinta. Currently, I'm their engineering manager for two teams, and I love uh, internal developer platforms. I studied in Porto when I was in university, and I'm now, now living in Barcelona. Okay, uh, a word of advice for this presentation. I'm the one telling the story, uh, but there's a lot of people behind all of these. There are more than 50 people uh, behind this. So uh, I'm not the one who built uh, the thing. I'm the one telling you the story. Uh, so uh, I would like that next presentations, some of my uh, teammates and some of people that work in my teams, they take the stage and they talk about this journey. I want to give a bit of context. Uh, some of you might not know what Edinta. Um, and Evinta started as a second-hand marketplace um, in, in Norway. Uh, and then it evolved through a lot of mergers and acquisition. And it's currently the biggest uh, peer play uh, online classified companies uh, in the world. Um, to give an example, in Portugal, I think it owns Custjust. Uh, in, in other countries like France, it owns Le Bon Coin. And, and, and all, all these big companies where you can sell things secondhand, buy a car, uh, rent uh, a new house and, and this kind of stuff. Whenever you start uh, growing, uh, especially through um, buying different companies in, in, with different cultures, you start realizing that, okay, everyone has a different way of uh, operating software. Everyone has their own way of building CI, CD pipelines and, and, and that kind of stuff. And everyone is sharpening their tool set local, right? So, oh, my team is doing CIC, but CIC, but we are using Jenkins, another team in another country, they are using whatever. And what you, what you start realizing is that we are not leveraging the scale of our companies. Right? So we, are, we are one of the biggest companies in the world and everyone is doing their own thing in their own team, right? And this, uh, this makes the question of how can we be more efficient, right? How can we make sure that we leverage our scale and we are more efficient to deliver the products our customers love? And we, when we talk about efficiency uh, or effectiveness, this, this becomes a hot topic, right? I remember when the industry, uh, we, we start, doing things like um, counting the number of lines of code every engineer uh, was doing and this kind of stuff. Uh, I hope no one is doing this anymore. <laughs> I hope that we are counting the, the lines we delete instead uh, and, <laughs> and not the lines we create. Uh, and, and, and here, oops, I'm not sure. Okay, no. Um, there, there are some people that mm, they, they start studying this problem. One of them was Peter Seibel. He was a CTO at Twitter. And he came up with, uh, with a, a model uh, that, that relates um, the overall engineering 
efficiency with uh, the so-called platform teams that uh, Manuel described previously. So uh, he came up with a model that he said, okay, the overall engineering efficiency of an organization uh, is the number of total engineers available minus the number of people working in platform team. So, so far this looks uh, sensible. And then these people working in these um, in these platform teams, they, they they are adding a boost factor to to the whole organization because they create they create things, a set of APIs and, and stuff that the, the the streamlined teams can use. But that is um, there's a lot of diminishing returns and there's a scaling factor which is less than one. This means that the tenth engineer that I add to these platform teams will impact less the overall efficiency than the ninth that then will impact less than the eighth and so on and so forth. To make it more visual, we are talking about uh, moving uh, some team from some people from these streamlined teams to these um, platform teams, investing to get this productivity boost. Oh, let's see. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, I am having some struggles with uh, with Google presentations. Um, David Jarrett from from Adobe. He, he also did a small exercise based on this this formula, and he said, and he recognizes that every company is very different, and uh, all this is very context dependent, right? Uh, and he made um, some some numbers uh, where. He chose a boost factor for, for the, the platform teams he had. And he, he also had a, um, a scaling factor that, that he, he found sensible. And for an, uh, an engineering organization of uh, 1,000 people, it is, he, 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 his hypothesis was that if we allocated 25% of people to platform, we would boost the, the overall efficiency as we, as we had, as if we had 1,400 uh, engineers in the organization, right? So just to, to, to make it more visual, what kind of impact uh, we, we expect from, from these platform teams. What, what are other industry trends uh, are we seeing? Uh, I, I can't say anything about team topologies because we just have here the, the author of the book. Uh, we know that we have these four types of teams that they have a set of um, well-defined interactions at the same time. Uh, one of the most recent uh, ThoughtWorks tech creator talks uh, exactly about um, the, the platform engineering uh, as a product. And also it talks about um, the, the, the Furky metrics, right? And, and this is interesting because when we talk about how to measure engineering efficiency, um, we need to talk about Nicole Fosgren and her group of research, right? So the, the Zora group, the DevOps um, research group. I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with uh, Nicole's uh, study, but long story short, um, she and her group, uh, they were discovering uh, how high-performing technology organizations um, deliver software. And if there was any kind of relationship between the practices they were applying and the business outcomes? The answer um, was yes. And the, this group came up with uh, four key metrics for um, relating software delivery 
uh, with business outcomes. These four key metrics are deployment frequency, how, how frequently are you going uh, to deploy things to your users, lead time for changes, um, as soon as the code is committed, how long it takes to, to reach production, paired with two metrics that they are really interesting because they, um, they are a sort of a counterbalance to the first two ones. The first one is the time to restart a service. Um, as, as soon as we have, an, uh, for instance, an unplanned outage, how long it takes to restore this service to our users, and also the change failure rate, uh, where we see out of the, all the, the changes or out of all the deployments to production, how many of those introduces um, a failure. Not only they came up with these four key metrics, they classify the teams depending on how um, performant they are, right? So there's low, medium, uh, high, and elite performing uh, teams. And just to, to give you a, a glimpse of that, so a elite performing team will deploy multiple times a day. The, the lead time for changes would be also uh, less than one day. The, the time to restart a service would be less than an hour, and uh, the change failure rate would be between uh, 0 and, and 15%. And this is also interesting because the, the evolution from 2018 to 2021 tells us that in 2018, there was like 7% of um, software development teams that entered this study that were elite performers. But in 2021, we have 26% of them. And we see a trend in the industry where teams become more and more um, high performing when it comes to deliver software. Uh, and what does what it means to our businesses, since considering that both of these are, are correlated, is that the teams that they don't adopt the correct practices and they don't become elite performers, they will have a more difficult job to make their products compelling to their final users. Okay. Hence, this was why we start building our internal development platform our internal developer platform, it's called the Common Platform. Um, this is the, the homepage of, uh, of our product, right? We treat our platform as a product. And um, the, the homepage says it all, right? We want people, we want to deliver more value faster. Um, and we want to provide people the, the, the right um, tools so they, can do, so they can do it. However, one, I think Manuel touched a bit on this. Um, before, um, other people like core teams, infrastructure teams, platform teams, they were seen like as an elite team with uh, ivory tower architectures, and that led uh, to a lot of frustration in a lot of organizations. So when 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 we decided to start building this, we we realized that we needed a set of principles that uh, guide us on on how can we evolve our common platform and making sure that we are creating a compelling platform? Uh, I will skim in some of these slides because Manuel did a good job um, telling a lot of things here. First, we treat our plat platform as a product. I think I don't need to say much here. Uh, Top-notch documentation. We have, uh, we have a help center with clear SLOs to answer uh, our customers. We have um, we have user experience um, people in our teams. It's not just software engineers building things for software engineers. We have people that know about user interfaces, user experiences, 
and we partner with users to build new features, right? So this collaboration model that we were mentioning, uh, we partner with them because they are the ones that know what they need, right? We, we might have a, a hint, but we are not um, deploying these services every day. We believe in having a golden path. Uh, again, Manuel also mentioned this. I, I, I usually like to say this, like uh, I like the, the Pareto principle, right? Um, a, a, we, we, with 20% of the effort, we allow the 80% of the use case. In, in our case, we know that the most common use case for us is people deploying a microservices uh, with, with an API, uh, a TLS certificate, a domain that talks to a database. This is 80% of our use case. We believe that the golden path is a set of proven choices and we make, um, we make the right thing the easiest thing to do. Of course, when you talk with engineers, uh, the right thing to do might be tricky. Uh, right, but <laughs> once uh, we, we, we decide on, on one and, on, and we make it the easiest thing to do. We are also toil absorbers. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the concept of toil, but that is this grunting work that no one wants really to do and it's devoid of value. Time consuming activities like uh, changing the Docker file versions, changing a library and all these kind of things. That, well, of course we need to do them, but if we, if we hadn't, that would be even better. We try to uh, absorb this style away from, from our teams because we know that our teams, they don't come to, to the work every day to, to migrate versions and, and stuff like that. I think this answers Eduardo's question. It's all about the glue and user experience. We are, I, I'm telling this to my team almost every week. We are here, we are not here to compete with AWS or uh, Grafana Cloud or any cloud service. That, that's not our job. Our job is to provide, to provide an end-to-end -end integrated experience, uh, is to, to provide things on top of what, what the, um, the cloud providers do. And it would be even better if we provide things that it's highly unlikely that the cloud providers will tap on, into that space. Why? Because it's highly contextual to, to, to our company. It's also worth uh, mentioning that as soon as you work in a big company, there's a lot of tools for everything. And there's a lot of stakeholders that decide what tool uh, will, be, will be used. And therefore it, it has a lot of value to glue these things together. And it's magic when people onboard a service and they get their dashboards uh, out of the box and they get uh, lots of things that we will see later in the presentation. Another thing that I think Manuel touched, uh, we want, we, we, as human beings, we've been leveraging technology all the time. We can innovate much faster now than, than before because we are constantly leveraging each other's innovations, right? That's why we want to build the right set of APIs so others can build on top, right? We don't want to be blockers, we want to be enablers. Right? And this is a major difference between this model of platform teams and what we used to have in the, the past. We need to be prepared for evolution. We don't know how the future will look like, but what we know for sure is that it will change, right? And if it will change, we need to adapt. We need to be able to adapt and we need to um, have conversations like, okay, we built this thing five years ago. Now there's a very good solution out there that can do it for us, it's a third party. Should we just prepare the decommission of it? 
uh, and, and that's it, right? No, no strings attached. Our, our strings attached are to our users and not to the things we build, right? I think this is a major, um, major thing. Migrations should be as transparent as possible, right? People, they don't come to work every day to migrate services from Kubernetes 1.15 to 1.20, right? It, because you, you, you might say, oh, this is silly. This is just one migration. But as, as your company is so big and there are so many teams and we have more than one platform team, if every team starts asking for a migration, then this adds up really quickly uh, and people will say, look, I will, I will get out of your platform because you are asking me to migrate every now and then, right? So we, I will also give some examples of this afterwards, but making migrations transparent, ideally no migrations should be, um, should be the goal, right? So the platform evolving underneath the user feed. Again, I'm borrowing concepts from, from Manuel, building the thinnest viable platform. <laughs> uh, it's better to build a small set of services and give a good service there um, than trying to build everything being too broad and everything falling apart. Uh, if, um, again, you can start with a wiki page, you can start with good documentation and evolve from there. Um, we, we learned this the hard way. And I will tell you about this afterwards, but I think this is a very valuable lesson also from, from Manuel. Okay, I talked about the, the why and how we make decisions in, in, in the common platform, right? What kind of capabilities do we, do we provide to our users uh, today? We provide uh, generic uh, automation and this generic automation is from uh, releasing libraries, uh, releasing new versions of mobile applications, rebasing uh, automatically uh, branches from, from each other and, and, and a couple of goodies that currently they are also more and more integrated in, in GitHub. So we might think about decommissioning some of the things we built in the past. We provide continuous integration, continuous delivery, runtime based on, on Kubernetes, observability with uh, we ship uh, logs and, and metrics to more than one um, different provider because again merges and acquisitions lots of people using heterogeneous um, tools so we provide the, the right interface to deliver observability in, into these tools and then we also provide one thing that is very interesting and I will talk later which are engineering insights and finally to, to, to close the DevOps uh, circle, we provide a way for people to uh, look into incidents and, and to make sure they, they receive alerts when, when, they, when their services are, are, are having problems and they can run um, investigations and afterwards a, a post-mortem. Uh, how is the engineering journey based on these capabilities? Um, so, I, I'm an engineer, I want to call a new feature. I go to Git enter, GitHub Enterprise. I just uh, set commit, push. There's some development automation there. Um, run the, the, um, the, the branch runs, there's code quality um, reports also going there to see if I'm um, complying with my team's uh, requirements, if my code coverage is, is good enough. We start things, um, in Artifactory, and then we build, um, we, we, we then deliver the service, right? Well, to, in this case, to, to Kubernetes. One important thing, and it's a decision that we made, 
is that uh, our platform so far, it only supports what we call 12-factor applications, right? We don't support any stateful application to, to be deployed. And people need to deploy this in, the, in their Amazon Web Services accounts instead. The reason for that is, again, thinnest viable platform, right? We, don't, we didn't have the expertise to run stateful applications on top of Kubernetes back then. Uh, we think it's a way different problem that we are solving right now. And we prefer to focus on stateless or 12-factor applications that where the state is outside um, of our runtimes. Everything is out of the box integrated with uh, logs and metrics for, for teams. And of course, when there's an, an incident, um, a new ticket will appear in your uh, in your Jira queue. To get to, to make uh, this a bit better, I, I don't have a demo here. I'm not even allowed to do that, I think. Um, but this is what uh, things look like when you are trying to onboard a new application in the common path, right? You can bring your own repository, you can use a template. As you can see, there's a lot of thought and, and some user interface and user experience put here because we, we know that people uh, onboarding these kind of um, platforms is, is, is important, right? If your onboarding takes five hours, no, no one cares, right? The, the onboarding should be as seamless as possible. We also provide things like some templates for, um, for the most common use, um, use cases. And these templates can be extended by the team, right? So this is one of these cases where we, we are creating technological leverage. We create a way for people to, to have templates. And then depending on, on each team, some teams, they, they, they create their own templates because they maintain several services. And they say, OK, uh, my template is Golang with, with blah, blah, blah. So I just put it here. And any, any team member can just use this template. And this is a, again, again a glimpse of what uh, an application looks like when it's on board, right? So uh, you can see uh, different uh, environments for, for your application, where it's deployed, the URL. You can easily access logs uh, and metrics, and you can even set up uh, the kubectl the for the clusters where, um, where your application is, is running. Right, uh, we we understand that not everyone wants to be an, a Kubernetes expert. That's fine. We we also allow people to interact directly with Kubernetes, um, but we understand that people usually they don't really care much about things, especially when they work well. And an important part of all of this, uh, when building such a platform, or something that we discover, is that having an enabling architecture makes a, a difference. Right. Everything that I was talking about before regarding the, the engineering experience, uh, when people push things to, to a branch, when build things, when, when they de deploy things, uh, and these kind of things, everything is collected into an event bus. So all these facts are collected to an event bus. And then we can derive conclusions from, from this data collect. What kind of conclusion? Things like, OK, uh, how much it costs to run my applications on top of the platform? And then I can make questions like, can I make it cheaper? Uh, I'm, am I spending the right amount of money on, on the cloud? Yes or no? And I can make an, uh, other um, questions to my teams because every build in every event of this is, is um, in this event bus, I can see if the trend of the, my build times are going up or going down. 
Are we taking are, are, are our bills taking too much time? Why? Is it something that we should look into? And we have all of this out of the box if you uh, just use the components that are wired together um, in the common platform. We talked about the, the Dora metrics, the, the four key metrics, and this is also something that you get out of the box uh, as soon as uh, you put your application in the common platform. You get deployment frequency, lead time, failure rate, and time to restore, boom, right? So the user just deploys an application into the common platform and they, they have all of this that they, they can use. I don't think that the metrics are valuable for themselves. I think they are useful to drive conversations and to ask the right questions. Why are we deploying just one time per week? Is it because we lack automated testing? I, I like this kind of conversation more than, than putting the emphasis in the metric, but I think it's good that we have this architecture that enables the, the collection of all, all these data. Okay. But many people ask me, okay, is, is the common platform uh, all or nothing thing? Is like, if I adopt one component, I need to adopt everything. And, 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 and what, what happens to my log system that I already have? What happens to my CI CD system, right? And we, we learn that um, we, defining clear APIs and defining clear what we call scape hatches makes a lot of sense in these cases, right? We know that. Um, when, when we acquire and when we merge a new uh, company, they come with their own baggage because they were so successful that of course they have a lot of uh, things that make them successful. And um, therefore, um, let me tell you, let me tell you a story the, uh, about these APIs and skip hatches. Subito is one of our marketplaces. Um, it's, it's in Italy. Um, and they were running in their data centers. Um, they have a different logging provider than the, the logging provider that we ship by default in the common platform. Therefore, they were trying the common platform and they said, okay, this is great. Uh, I will just move a few services and let's see how this goes. And the first thing they realized was, okay, <laughs> I don't have my, my logs in my logging provider. Um, and this can ha happen for a myriad of reasons. It can happen because the if everything else is in, in, in a different place, it doesn't make sense to, to create more cognitive load on that team, right? And what this, what this allowed us was to, okay, to, to think, okay, this team, they have this need, but it's not just this need, right? So we need a clear interface, a clear API to say, okay, we, we ship logs to a default login provider, but if you come with your own baggage, if you want to use something different, here they are. No questions asked, right? We don't enforce people to use the, the solutions we chose or, or anything. We, we, we are here to serve the customers and the customers in this case, they, they, they have the need to use a different uh, logging provider. One thing um, that I think it's, uh, it's important um, is that a, a big part of having uh, an important, um, a, big part, a big part of having uh, internal platforms are skills of uh, economy, right? Uh, our economies of scale. Uh, with more workloads running in this platform, a small change has a bigger impact. So let's talk about these big impacts and these multiplier effects with some specific examples. A few months ago, we migrated from uh, our previous logging solution to a different provider that was way cheaper. 
and we, we had this opportunity to, to make a back of the napkin calculation on, okay, how, how much it costs to migrate this if people are using our internal platform versus people that are using plain AWS. And we had on one side 250 applications and on the other side 174. One side zero pull requests, the other 210. And um, the overall logging migration experience was uh, one uh, person hour per, per applications for applications inside the common platform and 20 person hours um, per application in the ones uh, in AWS. Why? Because then you need to set up the, 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 the forwarding agent and check that everything is wired together and whatnot. And this takes uh, a lot of time, right? So in this case, it was more or less 15 uh, times cheaper to, to do this migration if you were in the common platform that than if you were running the, the thing yourself, right? And this is especially important for many reasons, but one of them uh, is because if doing this kind of migrations becomes so cheap for the company, then uh, we, are, we, we, we are not so vendor locked in in some, in some cases, and we get a lot of um, bargaining power with, with vendors. On the other hand, we make customers happy because <laughs> they, they don't need to do this grunting work. Oh my God, now I need to change all my libraries. Oh, this will be a disaster. Uh, and, and people were, they were quite happy with the migration. Uh, to give you some numbers, I think the, the migration took for, for the common platform for, um, took more or less three weeks for us, for the teams building the platform. And it took uh, zero for, for the people uh, using the platform. I also have a story. I have an engineer in my team that always says to me, look, John, uh, I, I like to save costs. Save costs is fantastic. But if we are constantly saying people that we just save costs, <laughs> this doesn't make me happy. And he is right. Multiplier effects are not just to save costs, right? They, they are things that you, with a small thing, you can have a big impact. And one, uh, one thing we had was a few months ago when from one day to the other, we implemented, um, we wired together the vulnerability scanning to the applications running in the common platform, right? So in one day, you didn't have it. And the, the next day, all the applications running in the platform had this new uh, button that they, they could see the, the, the critical issues and the CVEs they, they had in their application. This is fantastic because before they had access to this, uh, they had access to this um, security platform, but it was not integrated, right? So here again, this is the value of platform teams integrating things together to make uh, to reduce the cognitive load of other teams and to make even them aware that security is a thing, right? So not everyone is aware of it. Multiplier effects, the future. A lot of things that can happen in the future. ARM architectures, uh, we are working on one thing that is pretty ambitious, which is migrating seamlessly people from one Kubernetes version to the other. So we don't want to say, look, you have until the 31st of December to migrate to Kubernetes 121 because people don't really like this kind of stuff. And we also don't like this kind of stuff. Um, last, last few slides, um, we talk about the why. We talk how we are building, what kind of principles we are applying. We talk about what exactly we are building. We talked some about some of the advantages, but uh, there are also some storms, right? Some lessons learned and some stuff that uh, we learned the hard way, let's say. 
the first stuff uh, is uh, also related to something that uh, Manuel was talking about, right? We had a huge portfolio, huge. Uh, we used to operate a lot of service, a lot of open source. We, we created a lot of in-house tooling. And as, as soon as these things, they get commoditized, we need to be smarter and optimize our portfolio to reduce the cognitive load inside the platform teams, right? So we reduce the cognitive load inside the, the streamlined teams, but we also need to be conscious about it in the platform teams, right? And, and here it's exactly when, when third parties, they come up with solutions that we already have in-house, we are more than happy to decommission what we have and, and, and let it go because we have new problems to, to solve. The, the second lesson learned, I, I think this is pretty familiar to some in this group. We had one big Kubernetes cluster for the whole company, right? This is the greatest idea ever. No, it's not. Uh, it was a single point of failure. It, was, it had a big blast radius. Uh, if it was down bits and pieces of all these marketplaces, they were down in all, all the hero, and this was not really nice. And what it created then, is that, uh, the, that our teams ended up doing a lot of firefighting. And one thing that it's even worse than firefighting, it created fear, right? It created fear in our teams to deliver this flow. And, and we started to more and more, more and more bulky changes, right? So we were bulking changes to deploy them at once. And this led to bigger outages, right? So it, it is a bit uh, counterintuitive, or maybe for this group, it's not counterintuitive, but for some people in the industry, it is. Lesson learning. Uh, we started partitioning our clusters, more clusters. We have now uh, an equilibrium uh, between the blast radius we, we want to, to have and also the, the cloud efficiency that we want by uh, bin packing the, the workloads together. And the last one, oops, I'm not, I'm not sure if Google is agreeing with me. Okay, now for operational efficiency, uh, we learned that we should treat clusters as disposable masks, right? Like in the pandemic, we, we, we learned that for hygiene reasons, we shouldn't uh, wear a mask uh, more than a few hours. No special configurations goes uh, in any of these uh, clusters. Um, every cluster, we treat them as equal and, and we can just shut down a cluster to create a new one like we would do with a disposable mask, right? This, in some cases, this created some problems where some clusters, they were tuned to, to, to comply with some user's requests, and then it, uh, it bites us um, when, whenever we, we try to evolve the platform. Let's do a small recap to finish. Um, efficiency, uh, for key metrics, uh, how can we make sure that our teams deliver uh, software that makes sense and that uh, correlates with uh, good business outcomes? Treating platforms as products is pretty important. We focus on Glue and UX. We don't focus on competing with AWS. And the last thing, there are multiplier effects and economies of scale. That's fantastic. But there's also, there's also growing pains whenever you adopt this product mindset uh, in, in your team. Last uh, but not least, um, I'm happy if you want to have a chat with me. It, it does not. It does not need to be if you are interested in other It can be just because you are interested in platforms. I'm happy to have a chat about it. And we also uh, are hiring. So this was it. Uh, thank you. And I'm happy to answer any questions now. 
Thank you, João. I think it was a perfect complement to what, what Manuel talked uh, to us about in the beginning. Um, I like how you put the focus on the on the practice side of things, on, on the growing pains, on the implementation, which Manuel has overseen so many, but obviously he has to abstract uh, to theoretical uh, ideas. I have a a bunch of questions here, but I'll start with the ones that, that were asked already in the chat. Miguel Ayllu um, asked about ROI. How do you quantify the return on investment on the things that you provide to your internal customers? Is this question for me? I can answer. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we, we conduct uh, ROI exercises annually, right? And uh, what we see is more or less uh, how much time we invest to develop something uh, versus the, um, how, how we are capitalizing on, on those investments and if it makes sense to uh, keep investing on this or if it makes sense to just kill that initiative um, for, 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 for any reason, right? So we track the unit cost uh, of each um, CPU and memory that people use and we know exactly uh, we we have a, a actually a calculation on the cent on how it how much it takes uh, every every tenant to um, to use the platform. We compare it also with uh, peers in the industry. Like okay, if you had to do this in AWS, you would pay this, and then everything else that you would need to wire together, it's up to you how much it costs. But be aware that this is the minimum or the base cost that you you would pay. So yeah. Noel, do you do you have any inputs on that, like ROI calculation from from your customers and their experiences? Uh, well, I would say that what they they're doing at Vinta is much more fine grained than what we normally see. Uh, obviously, if you have that kind of of data, and we saw in some of the slides, like even um, how much effort was involved in this in the service, or how much effort for the teams, that that's really good. But in general, um, I would start, if, if you don't have that yet, start with um, how can we measure if what we're providing is really helping the streamline teams. Um, that's not always easy, but like the four key metrics, um, you've, you have to be careful because a lot of things are happening at the same time in an organization. But if you are providing services in the platform that the teams are using, and uh, some of the service, for example, is reducing deployment time, and we see that the lead time for the teams is going down, there seems to be um, correlation. Maybe it's not the only cause, but it's uh, probably helping. Um, so that that's in terms of if you look from a ROI perspective, but then obviously there are metrics that we would expect platform teams to look at um, to, to know if they're going the right direction. So tracking user satisfaction using the platform. Uh, it's something that, yes, is sort of subjective, but if you have a, an audience of teams using the platform and you, you do a regular kind of survey and you see that that they, they respond and you have some some numbers in terms of satisfaction, that's, uh, that's valuable. So you basically what I'm saying, you can start with something pretty easy, like a survey, even if you don't have this sort of data that uh, Joao mentioned, and then you go and, and dig deeper. Excellent. Um, people like numbers. Uh, and Joao uh, like, 
gave us a little bit of a, an idea there that is there is an ideal number for your platform team because you have diminishing returns. What how big is your platform team? How 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 many how many other teams or how many other people are you serving? What's what's the ratio that you're looking at? Okay. This is a complex question, especially after a, a merger process, but I will try to answer. First, first, first thing we need to understand is in Alevinta, there are more than one platform team, right? There are teams that are specialized in data, for instance. I, I was talking about especially um, 12-factor applications, right? So APIs and stuff. Uh, in our case, we are more or less uh, 50 people, okay? Um, and I think that most of the central teams that provide mainly platforms, I think we are um, hundred and something. And the number of engineers before the merger was 1000 and something, and now should be the double, right? So to, to give you a, a glimpse on the numbers, it's also one thing important that, for instance, the, the, the platform I mentioned, not all the teams in Alevinta are already adopting it uh, at the moment, right? So. I think we have to answer the question of the number of teams that use it already. I think we have more or less uh, 50, 60 teams um, using this, this platform. Some are bigger than, than others. And yeah, we, we are more or less 50 of us uh, working on different parts, right? On CICD, but also even in the user experience and the user interface and then the, the, the runtime. Thank you. Um... Manuel, I'd like to double click on this optionality of of platform of, of of the product because it's it's a very foreign concept to many many people, particularly uh, traditional companies that you know I I have people here doing work and that work shall be used. Uh, and there's also the not not built here scenario. Um, how how do you convince people that your product is better than whatever else is out there. Um, and most importantly, what do you do to try to prevent um, that shadow IT, that divergence, uh, that like having a bunch of other teams duplicating work essentially, uh, because just because? Um, yes, those are good questions. So, um... The optionality, I found that it's it's um, better understood if we talk in terms of a spectrum, right? So different types of services are probably in different, different parts of the spectrum where you might have things like identity management, access control, probably there's no option there or not much, right? You don't want teams to go off and implement our own versions of this and sometimes it doesn't even... even it wouldn't be possible. And so there are some key things that you probably cannot pr provide options, but then look at what are everything else that, that should be optional, even you know around what kind of databases we have, what kind of CICD services, what kind of monitoring, et cetera. A lot of things uh, can be optional and some of these have a lot of options in the market. And so, um, that's kind of starting principle. And then, yes, a lot of organizations fear that, uh, you know, teams are going to go off and do their own things and spend their time building stuff that is not needed. In my experience in the, in the past, this has been 
um, I think multiple factors. So one of the things that that has happened is that um, from management or cost efficiency or what you want to call it, trying to impose a kind of one size fits all and all the teams work in the same way with this kind of idealized view that, well, if everyone uses the same tools, same process, everything's the same, then we're more efficient because people can move teams easily or, you know, some arguments that are just theoretical. And then when you look at it in practice, no one has ever seen this provide much advantage, right? Um, if someone needs to move team and the team has a, has a different technology stack, you have to you just spend some time learning in the beginning. Um, but but it's not really a, a major advantage and we want to keep teams stable. The other thing that has happened in the past is just lack of, of communication where uh, the platform teams of the past have been isolated and just looking at what, what they should build and they, they have good intentions again, but they're just assuming they know what other teams need. And so um, they end up in places where they build stuff that is not really as useful uh, for, for many teams. And so those teams look for options, whether that's official or not official. And so when you have different dynamics where you say, you know, you have clarity that the way we work as a platform is collaboration uh, alongside with providing things as a service, but it always starts with collaboration. Then you start seeing teams become more open and reach out to the platform team. Um, and it's not always easy even then, because then you might get to the other point where the, 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 the internal teams expect too much from the platform and then there's a limit to what they can do. And so that's where you need good product management as well inside the platform to manage all these expectations. Um, but that's still better because then you have the discussions and you have the understanding of what different teams need. And then you provide option when the option is available. Thank you, Zhuang, you have, you have thoughts. Yeah, very quickly. I, I think there can be a space for mandating uh, the use of the platform, but this space needs to be completely decoupled from the ones that are building the platform, right? So I think that it's fair if a CTO inside a, one of the departments of the company says, look, we, I don't want my teams to invest on this kind of tooling. I think we should go with it. I think this is fair. Right, but it should not be part of a, a centralized uh, um, mandate or this team that builds mandates because I think that creates perverse incentives. So I just wanted to give this nuance here because I think it has some value when we decouple these decision making. I think also what is what is fair to mandate is when we're talking about governance, security, things like that. So like I think I said in the beginning, it's not that the, now the teams that the, have you know free reign to do whatever they want and there's no accountability. That's not what we're talking about. First of all, most teams don't want to have work that is not needed if they have a good platform, but um, it's also a governance perspective and it's totally fair to say, look, the platform, if you use, let's say the example of, uh, if you use the deployment pipeline templates in the platform, you will get uh, vulnerability checking, you will get uh, proper 
infrastructure, whatever it, it might be. And so what you can say is, okay, if you need to use a different deployment pipeline tooling on your own, these are the things, this is the criteria you need to show us. So that's where the accountability comes in. You need to show us that you don't have critical vulnerabilities. So you need to, to do the, the, the scanning yourselves or whatever, but you need to show us that this is being counted for. And very quickly teams, um, again, they will, they will stop doing things in, in this kind of shadow way if there's no valid justification, because then you understand, well, we're, we're really spending more effort and why is that? And so if there's no, no real justification, then, uh, then it quickly kind of tends to, to stop. Um, great. So we are we are coming to two hours. It's it's uh, a long meetup, uh, and I'm conscious of time. I wanted to leave with one last question to both of you. How how do we start? You know, say I'm 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 a traditional operations team, or like how what what are the first steps to create that that thinnest viable platform? Like how how would you approach it if you had Greenfield? Should I start? Do you want to start? <laughs> I would just say, talk to your developers. Go there, sit with them, see what they are doing, and ask questions, right? Like usual product discovery would work. I would do that, right? And, and ask why. Why are you doing this? Without judging, right? So understanding exactly what are the needs of these people and seeing exactly where, where are their major pain points and then starting addressing it um, in an MVP uh, fashion. I like that and I'll say, if you can't do that, if you can't go and talk to your developers, then you have other problems, <laughs> right? More, more significant that you need to, to think of. But um, what I usually recommend, especially if we're talking about larger organizations that maybe have very traditional way of working, uh, that, like you're saying, Miguel, uh, and you know, we can go to extremes where you still see this now and then, large organizations where you have a storage team and you have a network team and you have a compute team and you have database team. And it's like, how many requests, how much cognitive load is there on the team to just create an environment, right? To, for, to do, to run their application if they need to depend on this or all these other teams. Um, so that's, that's kind of the extreme, but um, sort of like taking what, what Joan said and then uh, talking to people, understand what we have a useful first service. And you can market it as an experiment, which is always a, a great way to, to get some leverage. Like, oh, this is just an experiment. Don't worry. Don't look at it. No, one's, no one needs to know what's happening here from, from uh, you know, if you have a lot of antibodies in the organization to this approach. Um, but just, just try something where you can show the value where, look, now what used to take maybe... Uh, two weeks and, and multiple requests and tickets. Now we can do this with a simple service. You know, like Jean said, it's only covering in the beginning, maybe even just 50% uh, of the cases or 20%, or but probably you can quickly go up to that those 80% because most, most teams are probably doing similar uh, setups. So try to focus on something small enough that you can create a, a, a experiment of, of creating this service and then uh, show the value and then show 
talk to people and they start adopting that and then it kind of takes off from there and if you have some some buy-in from some of the management you can even start to try to create a platform team that is sort of cross-functional from those old silos uh, and and again as an experiment let's try and see what what this team can come up with in six months depends on 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 the context of the organization but um does anyone have questions i know it's pretty late it's already nine o'clock in spain uh but if anyone has any final questions uh, go ahead you can type or just speak I guess I had all the questions. Um, I could keep on chatting with you guys. I have I have loads written here, uh, but I'm I'm aware we all have lives outside of this. Thank you so much, uh, Manuel, João, for for joining us uh, uh, in this in this uh, strange hour for you guys uh, and for sharing your your experiences. Congratulations, Manuel, on the book. It's it's amazing. Uh, it's uh, thank you. I hate for obvious reasons. Congratulations, João, on creating a successful implementation of, of this pattern, uh, which is definitely not trivial. Um, and uh, see you guys around. Thank you, Miguel. And Eva, thank you. See you. See you. Bye-bye.